Well, good morning again. It's always good to be in the pulpit here. We're starting a new series. It's just a few weeks long uh, before we get into the groove of summer. We just finished a pretty lengthy I Am series, walking through the book of John, uh, going looking at the I Am statements of of Jesus. And before we got to summer, we wanted to give you the opportunity. Everyone always wants to uh, or has input as to who's saying what up here. Um, and so we thought we'd turn it over to you and get your input, whether you had questions or just ideas or concepts that maybe you struggled with or issues you're dealing with. And so we've collected feedback from you over the past few weeks, and we've put together a couple of sermons over the next four or five weeks that we're going to try to address a few topics. Um, before I get to the where we'll be this morning, I do want to tell you that we did have uh, a handful of people uh, that had questions whether it was about Revelation, end times, or heaven. And we're not going to address any of those things over the next few weeks. It's not because it's too hard or too complicated, but it's because I want to let you know a couple resources. Number one, right now during our Sunday School Hour, Dr. Larry Dyer is actually teaching through the book of Revelation. And so that's a great spot for you to be. 9.30 down in the fellowship hall, and he's walking through the whole book. Um, the, the class is probably about halfway done, but if you talk to him, he'll let you know about his website where he puts up all the notes, as well as I think they're working on getting video there. So that's one resource for you. Um, we also archive all of our old sermon series. And if you go down to the library, you check out um, our sermon page online. Uh, you can go, uh, just not too long ago, Pastor Keith went through a series on Revelation. At the end of that series, he spent three or four weeks specifically talking about heaven. So we feel with, uh, we want to let you know that we heard your questions, we got your questions, but we think we've got enough resources out there that are available to you. But of course, if you have other questions and it hasn't been addressed, come see us, come talk to us send us an email, uh, we'll, we'll help you out as much as we can there. So we come to this morning, and here's the, the basic premise. I've paraphrased this a little bit. This was the question or thought. How do we reconcile the apparent contradiction and how God required people to live in the Old Testament? And so they're saying the strict laws of the Old Testament compared to how he leads and guides in the New Testament. And I think this is a, a pretty familiar question that you hear from in the church and out of the church. Well, what are we supposed to do where the Old Testament seems so strict and it's all about law and do this and don't do this and obey, and then you get to the New Testament and it's Jesus and it's love and grace, and how are we supposed to, how do those two things go together? And then you also hear from, usually outside of the church, people accusing, and sometimes rightly so, people, and they're saying, you just pick and choose what you believe. You don't like this person in Leviticus, but you use this person in Leviticus. And so how are we supposed to figure out how to balance the Old Testament and the New Testament? So that's a big chunk to tackle uh, this morning. I would do my best to handle that, but I want to give you just a, a word of warning and in preparation. The Bible speaks to these things, but the Bible is a big book. And so I want to try to give you as, as a, a complete, a whole picture as I can from Scripture about how we deal with these two issues. Um, so I'm going to give you quite a few Scriptures. I put them, I think, almost all on the screen, uh, but I'll be moving fast through them. So whether you want to just jot the notes down, I'd be happy to give you the references after the uh, service as well. Uh, so just a word of warning there. Uh, get ready for a lot of Scripture to come your way, but I hope you understand the heart. It's not about me. It's not about what I think. It's about what the Word of God says. And we're just here rightly dividing uh, His Word this morning. So with that in mind, will you join me with a word of prayer?
Lord, we do pray uh, that we are coming to your word with a bit of sensitivity, that we are relying on your Holy Spirit to teach us, to help us as we wade through some of these issues so we can better learn and better live and better witness to those around us. So be with us as we uh, worship you through the preaching of your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So how do we do, how, what do we deal with this idea of the Old Testament strict and the New Testament not so strict? Well, let's start with the law. Okay, what's the law? Well, that's where you get a little complicated right off the bat, because if you go through the New Testament, you see the law is used in various different contexts. And so the law could refer to the whole Old Testament. The law could refer to just the Ten Commandments. The law could refer to the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes Jesus speaks of the law, and he's actually talking about not God's law, but the extra traditions and requirements the scribes and the Pharisees put on the law that became a burden. But I think for the purpose of this morning, what we want to focus on is this idea of the Mosaic Law. The law that is basically comprised of the whole Old Testament, but it's centered around the the law that God gave Moses. It's 613 commands, if you didn't know. It's 613 commands that God says, this is how you ought to live. And that's a, a lot for anyone to digest. And we're not going to go through all 613 here this morning, but I want to give you a way to think about it, a categorization of the law. And people basically agree there's three kind of aspects of the law. There's a civil law. Israel was a nation state. They were an ethnic state. And so they needed a government. And there was this aspect of civil law. The civil law was not there just to keep order and to get the government structure going. But the civil law was given by God to Israel to make them distinct, to show that they were different. It was a very different world and environment then. And God said, this is how people will know you are my people. Follow these laws. And so you had the civil law. And then you also had the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law was really put in place and it had to do with worship of a holy God. God says, I am holy, and because I'm holy, here is how you ought to worship me. And so there was laws about worship, there was laws about the temple, there was laws about cleanliness, and, and all of these different things. And that not only demonstrated how to worship, but the holiness of the God of Israel. And then we have the moral laws. We have the civil law, the ceremonial law, and then we have the moral law. And the moral law was really how do you treat one another? And the basis for the moral law was how God felt and his heart for the nation and the people of Israel. And so that, that's maybe a, a way to help you think and consider what the Old Testament law is about. And so while those three categories are helpful, as we talk about the law this morning, it's one unit. Because Israel was a nation, they were a people of God, they were religious, and it was all wrapped up into one, and it was all intertwined. And so when we talk about the law, we're just talking about God's commands of how his people were to live. And the question goes back to, it was pretty strict, it looked pretty harsh, and so we'll get there in a minute. And and we'll start by, by asking the question, so that's what's the law, but what was or is the purpose of the law? Why did God get it? Give it. Well, number one, we've already spoke to it a little bit. God was setting the standard for righteousness. 
He was setting the standard. He's saying, this is how you need to act and live because I am holy. This is what Leviticus 11, 44 and 45 says. For I am the Lord your God. Concentrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So there's the standard. The law says, here you go, Israel, my people, be holy, because I am holy. That's the first reason for the law. But naturally, it leads to the second purpose of the law, to reveal the sinfulness of man. God's holy, we are not. Romans 3 makes it pretty clear. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So God's saying, here's my standard. It's me. I'm holy, so be holy. People naturally should then understand, well, we can't do that because I'm a person and I'm sinful. And so this is what the law does. The law reveals the sinfulness of man. And then hopefully that naturally points to the third aspect here of why does God give the law? And it's to point us to Christ. Galatians 3 tells us, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And so the progression is, I am holy, so be holy. We can't be holy. Yes, that's the point. You are sinners. So now, how are we going to fix this problem? Well, God's going to fix this problem, and the whole reason these laws were set up was to point his people to a redeemer, to a savior who was coming. And so what the law does for us is it presents a couple problems. Here are the problems that the law presents. Number one, it's impossible to keep. I've already said that here this morning, but the verse that goes with that, familiar one maybe to most, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law says, be holy and we cannot. The law is impossible to save. Galatians 2:16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so this idea of here's the problem that the law keeps presenting to the people. I can't keep the law. The law in of itself isn't even able to save anyone. And then, lastly, the, the law wasn't meant to be around forever. Hebrews talks about um, this concept in Hebrews chapter 7. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Well, a better hope needed to be introduced because the law was never designed to last for eternity because it's impossible to save in of itself, because it's impossible to keep. 
And so you see, the way that I think is, is maybe helpful for you to think about the law is to think about the law as a mirror. You go into your bathroom, you look in the mirror, you realize you have dirt on your face, right? The mirror shows your true condition. It shows that your face is dirty. You can see that you need cleansing. But what happens? The mirror drives you to something else. The mirror drives you to soap and to water, right? You need to get clean, but you don't take the mirror off the wall and wash your face with the mirror, right? The law, or in this context, the mirror drives us to something else. Um, it's the the law, the mirror, can't clean us. No matter how bad we are, no matter how dirty we are, no matter how sincere we are, no matter how much we really want the law to clean us, no matter how bad we need it or how hard we try, the law is as good of cleaning us as a mirror would be getting dirt off our face. That's what happens when we look and analyze the law. So, then where does that leave us? So it's a pretty kind of a hopeless situation. Well, I'll take you all the way back to the garden. And you go to the fall of man in Genesis 3. And back in Genesis 3.15, the first instance of man's sin, we also find the first mention of the gospel. We find the first mention of a redeemer, a rescuer, a savior. And see, this is God's plan. And this was the purpose of the law. So the law in of itself cannot save us or justify us. But what the law does is bring us to Christ. The law brings us, all the law does in the Old Testament, time and time again, is pointing us to this Redeemer that was promised since the beginning of man's sinfulness. So the law brings us to Christ. It's important that we understand that it's Christ, and it could be no one else. If you look at Romans 8, the first couple of verses here of Romans 8 tell us that Jesus and God accomplished what the law could never do. Here's a few verses, starting with verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And what those verses are telling us is, God accomplished in Christ what the law could never do. And there wasn't a problem with the law. The problem was with us. Um, it says that the law was weakened by the flesh. The law was perfect and the law was holy. That wasn't the problem. The problem was sinful man can't keep the law. And the point was to point us to Christ because in Christ now we have the opportunity to be set free in Christ. So Jesus accomplishes what the law could not do. But Jesus also fulfills the entire law. The entire law is fulfilled in Christ. Jesus himself talks about this in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 says, verse 17 starts, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until, it, until all is accomplished. 
And these are important verses, and this is an important concept, because some people want to say, well, you don't really need the Old Testament. If it wasn't you know, good for our salvation, then we don't really need it. But Jesus himself says, I didn't come to abolish it. We're not going to rip out the Old Testament and never look at it again. He says, no, I came, and I came as a fulfillment to the law. Well, how did Jesus fulfill the law? There's probably 105 different reasons how Jesus fulfilled the law. But I want to go back and just point out a couple of things. We talked about the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral law. Well, let me show you in a couple of verses how Jesus fulfilled all of those things. He fulfilled the civil law by simply living perfectly. He obeyed every command and he lived um, perfectly. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for the righteousness to everyone who believes. Righteousness is now found in Christ, not the law. He fulfilled the civil law. But he also fulfilled the ceremonial law in at least two ways. He became our sacrifice. Hebrews 9, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We don't need sacrifice anymore because it's fulfilled in who Jesus is. And that's our sacrifice. But Jesus also fulfilled the law in becoming our priest. Hebrews 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So here we have the fulfillment of the ceremonial law, of everything that was wrapped up in worship. Now we find in Christ. They needed a perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. We needed a perpetual priest. Jesus is our perpetual priest. We don't need any more because he is our eternal priest. Everything is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And he fulfilled the moral law by walking in love and obedience to the Father. John fourteen thirty one. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Therefore, here, let us go from here. The end of that. Jesus fulfilled every part of the law completely and perfectly. So what does that have to do with us? That's Jesus. What about us? Well, what it means for us is that all of these different truths, they converge and they tell us that we're no longer under the law. That this whole thing of the Old Testament, we're not bound by that anymore. We're not under the law. Why? Because we look to Jesus. Now we look to Jesus who's saying the law is important and we need the law and I am the fulfillment of the law. So we look to Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. So then we look at Jesus and how he applies the law to the New Testament believer. Let me show you Matthew 22. And he said, this is Jesus, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Here's a summarization of all the law and all the prophets. Two things. Love God, love people. This is what Jesus says. The basis of the law, and I have fulfilled the law, and this is how we are going to apply the law in the New Testament. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the important thing to realize. This shouldn't have come as a surprise to any Old Testament saint, Pharisee, or scribe, or anyone else. Because these concepts are not new. 
These concepts are found throughout the Old Testament. They're found within God's law. Let me show you a couple examples. You'll recognize these words. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. God giving the law to Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You see that in Deuteronomy 6. We see another concept show up in Leviticus chapter 19. These words will sound familiar, especially the last half. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. These are Old Testament concepts, and Jesus is just bringing into the New Testament and saying, here's how the law applies. One more. The prophets also said, there's coming a time where this is going to be how God's kingdom and economy works. Here's the prophet in Jeremiah 31. Sorry, in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, that's the Old Testament law, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the prophet saying, here's what's coming, and here's what the new covenant is bringing. And who, is, and who brings in the new covenant? It's Jesus. And so as Jesus comes onto the scene, he's saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so what I think we should take away from this is that although life is going to look markedly different in the Old Testament than it's going to look in the rule and life of the New Testament believer, the heart of God has always been the same. It's always been the same. That the heart of the people would be captivated by the heart of God. And that we would respond with love and worship. It looks different the different style and economy and how it worked in the Old Testament because it was pointing to the new. But the heart of God has not changed. There's great consistency there. And so we have the law. We have the law bringing us to Christ. And then we see Christ brings us to love. What does that mean? Well, the first thing I notice is that when Jesus comes into the world, that he's not only fulfilling the law, but he actually takes the law and he intensifies it on the basis of love. And so this is most easily seen in this account in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going back and forth with uh, some Pharisees and other disciples there. I'm not going to read all these passages. I'll just give you kind of the summary version of how I'm saying and why I think Jesus clearly says that I'm a fulfillment of the law, but the law is intensified because of love. And so what he does is say, Hey, people, Pharisees and Old Testament followers of God, You've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. And if you murder, you should incur judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with his brother, you deserve that same judgment. 
And so see what Jesus is doing is he starts to say, you are concentrated on the external command not to murder. But if we're going to put that in the context of love, if you're even angry with your brother, now you're guilty of that same sin. And so love starts to intensify the law. It doesn't wash over it or ignore it. So he does it again, and these are just a couple things. There's, there's five or six different ways that Jesus does this. And here, the next thing he says, You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've even um, looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And so love is intensifying the law. It's not just an outward action of, oh, you committed adultery. No, it's even if you look, if it's in your heart, you're guilty. You're like, oh, I didn't know it was this hard. Yeah. The love actually intensifies and makes the law greater. Matthew 5, he says, you, you've heard it said in your circles, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You see, the law is just being intensified by Christ. You see, the measure that Christ is interested in is not our external actions, but our inward motivations and our heart. Not only does God, does Jesus intensify the law through love, he then raises the standard of love. He goes from love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But then in John 13, towards the end of his ministry, he says this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so now... Jesus is raising the standard from love people like you love yourself to love people like I love people. And then we have to start saying, well, how did Jesus love people? Well, he loved people perfectly. He loved people sacrificially. He loved people without conditions. He loved people who didn't deserve it. He loved people who threw it back in his face. That's how we're supposed to love? Yes. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He intensifies the law. He raises the standard of love. And then, maybe most importantly, he reveals himself through love. John fourteen twenty one. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. We know God on the basis of his love. We are known by God on the basis of our love. God is made manifest in us as we love him. He has shown us, he has demonstrated us to us what love is is. So in all of these different ways, Jesus is moving us from the law to love. So a little more, what does that mean 
for me? How does that answer the question of what about these strict Old Testament laws and the not-so-strict, grace-filled New Testament? There's a couple of things for you to think about. And they've kind of already been mentioned in one way or another. Remember that while it may look different, the heart of the law is the same. The heart of God has not changed from Old Testament to New. Yes, God gave a strict set of commands to the nation of Israel. And as New Testament believers, we are not bound by that law. We are set free in Jesus. But if we truly want to follow Jesus, we are going to have to love in a way that actually intensifies the law, in a way that raises our standard of love, in a way that shows people who God is by the way we love. This is what it means for the law to be fulfilled in Christ and in us. So there's great consistency between the Old Testament law and New Testament grace. It's a heart of love towards God and towards people. There's also a warning here. The warning is to avoid legalism. The avoid the, the warning is to don't look to the law for your justification. And I think in a lot of ways we get it. In a lot of ways we're happy to say, yeah, I'm celebrating, we're free, we're not bound by the law. I get to go home, I get to have some shrimp, I get to have some bacon. We don't have to worry about like getting uh, washed on the way in here. Like That's great and we love that part of not being under the law. But then I think what happens... Maybe it's not true for you, but I believe it's true with me. I think my tendency is, I know I'm not bound by the law, and I know I'm set free, but when I start to analyze, like, am I a good Christian? Am I doing what God wants me to do? I start going back to the law. I start thinking about, well, how often have I gone to church? And how often, how many Bible verses do I know? And um, am I wearing the right clothes to church? I was praying for sunshine today. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, but we're looking, and we go to the law, and we say, we start judging our walk by the law. That's legalism. When, we, when we're judging ourselves based on work, then we think we're earning favor by what we're doing. And Jesus is saying that's not what the law is about. It never was. I don't take pleasure in sacrifice. I want your heart. Old Testament and New, I want your heart. So what we need to do is look at our standard and change our standard. And our standard isn't based on external behaviors. But our standard is going to be on our internal motivation. And our standard is going to be on our capacity to love the way that Christ has loved. So we don't compare ourselves by how much money we give or how often we come to church or anything like that. We need to look at our lives through a different lens. We need to look at our lives in light of how we love. This is what it means to be a Christian, and this is why it's hard to be a Christian. I'll give you some examples. We need to be asking questions like, have I loved my spouse well this week? Have I loved my wife or my husband the way that Jesus loves his church? Because that's what God cares about. Have I demonstrated the love of Christ to my kids in my home 
to my neighbors? Have I pursued someone with the love of Christ the way that God pursues us? Did I come to worship this morning out of obligation so that people would see me here? Or did I come out of love and for worship of God? Have I stopped and just rested in knowing the love of God and understanding the love of God and just enjoying the love of God? Have I done that? Has it cost you anything to love this week, this year? Has it cost you to love? It costs Jesus to love. We're called to love like Jesus. Have you loved someone who doesn't deserve it? Have you loved someone when they're throwing it back in your face and you keep loving them anyway? Have you considered the good of others before yourself? See, this is God's economy. This is the law being fulfilled in love. It's capturing the heart of God and how we show and demonstrate not only our own walk with Him, but we bring others into the love of God. The last thing I want to remind you of as Jesus moves us from law to love is It looks different, but the heart's the same. We need to avoid legalism. And then, number three, not being bound by the law doesn't mean we're free to do whatever we want or we should be comfortable just staying where we're at. We just have two verses that back that up. Number one, we're not free to do whatever we want. Jesus has set us free so we can pursue righteousness. And this is what a lot of Romans speaks to. Here's just a passage of Romans 6. I'll just read the first verse. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. The expectation of love is actually that we pursue righteousness. Not that we just do whatever we want because we're free. And then, we shouldn't just be comfortable where we're at. We should be pursuing good works. Titus chapter 2 speaks to this truth. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But look at what that looks like training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, all lawlessness, and to purify himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. That's love. That's the fulfillment of the law is this kind of love. As we close, I'll tell you a story as reading Chuck Colson tells it. It's a World War II story. He talks about these prisoners. They're prisoners, prisoner of war and their job basically was to dig ditches. And so every day they would be handed a shovel. They go dig a ditch. They come back, turn their shovel in and repeat. And this is what happened day after day. Well, uh, one day the guys come back from digging 
There's 20 guys. There's 19 shovels. So the guards, infuriated, say, which one of you didn't bring back your shovel? No one says anything. I say it again. If you don't tell us who didn't bring back the shovel, we're going to start killing you one by one. 19-year-old kid steps up. I didn't bring back my shovel. Guards go over to him, gun to his head, drops down dead. Guards look at the rest of the prisoners and say, don't be like him. Don't forget your shovel or you are next. Do your work. Guards leave. Guys are looking at this 19-year-old kid dead on the ground. They look at the shovels, count the shovels. There's 20 shovels. Guards miscount it. What did that kid do? 19 years old. I forgot my shovel. You know what he did? He loved his brothers. He sacrificed for the good of somebody. He knew that someone was going to have to do something. Otherwise, more people are going to die. That's love. Imagine what it would look like if we committed to love the way that Jesus loved, the sacrificial love, the not self-serving love, the love that considers the good of others before ourselves. Imagine what it would look like if we committed to love through the pursuit of righteousness and the pursuit of good works. This is what it would look like. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If the world needs a picture of anything today, isn't it one of God's eternal, redeeming love? That's the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and where we see it in application today.